What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. My favorite thing about working in healthcare is the people. This industry brings together brilliant, highly motivated individuals who are driven by the opportunity to make a difference. My name is Hallie Tecco, and this is The Heart of Healthcare, a podcast where I'll be introducing you to the people on the ground moving the needle in public health and medicine. A large number of generic drug manufacturers in certain overseas countries are passing off substandard drugs as legitimate generics for profit. They are deliberately flouting FDA regulations and standards. Basically, they are committing fraud. In the process, they are risking the health of patients around the world. They may even be costing patient lives. That was Catherine Ebon, an investigative journalist who interviewed whistleblowers and reported on generic drug companies across four continents. If you're on any medications, it's likely that they are generic. In fact, generic medications now represent 90% of the prescriptions filled in this country. It wasn't always this way. In 1984, Congress passed the Hatch-Waxman Act, which created a new regulatory track for generic drugs. Basically, they said as long as generic manufacturers could prove their drugs were bioequivalent to the brand name drug, they could get approved by the FDA. But lately, the generic drug market has been under heat as manufacturing has largely moved overseas and some manufacturers have cut corners to compete on price. Meanwhile, Americans pay more for prescription drugs than other developed nations And I just wanted to know more about the drug supply. So today I'm talking to my friend, Hitha Palapu. Hitha is a science communicator, a scientist, an angel investor, and a biopharma executive. She is the CEO of Roshan Pharmaceuticals, an early stage life science company developing injectable aspirin for coronary heart failure patients. Hitha, welcome to the Heart of Healthcare. Thank you so much for having me. Let's start with an overview of how we got to where we are today in the pharmaceutical market overall. If you could tell us kind of some of the key policies that kind of change the trajectory um, and frame the market for us. Sure. So Hatch-Waxman, as you mentioned earlier, really was the path to generic drugs and gave it the first pathway into this country. What that did was make a lot of the most commonly used drugs more widely accessible and more affordable for the patients and for the health economy. Now, because prices on some of these drugs have become so low, when margins go from being, you know, 100 to 1000% to even 20%, a lot of companies will stop manufacturing said products. So what was meant to 
help lower the cost of healthcare has also in turn created either a lack of competition and therefore drug shortages, or in the cases of some drugs where there's only one manufacturer of an old generic drug, allowed them to increase price kind of in an unregulated manner just because they're the only player in town. The second major piece of legislation is the Biologics Price Competition and Innovation Act. And this was meant to do what Hatch-Waxman did for small molecule drugs, but for larger biologic drugs. Now, biologics are a much more complicated and a much more expensive drug to manufacture as the active ingredient in it is quite frankly, alive as biological. So it is there, this barrier to entry in biologics is much higher. This act was supposed to help lower the barrier to entry for biosimilar manufacturers and developers. However, we really haven't seen biosimilar, um, the biosimilar market grow at all in the United States, the way we have in Europe. And that's simply because the way large American companies, biopharma companies will invest in legal protections and expanding their patent portfolio to keep biosimilars off the market. And the cost to produce a biosimilar is almost as high as developing the biological drug itself. So while the Biologics Price Competition and Innovation Act, in principle, was supposed to do what Hatch-Waxman actually did in reducing the barrier to entry and the cost for some of these biological drugs. In actuality, because biologics are so expensive to produce and the regulatory barriers that have been put in due to this act, it costs almost as much to produce a biosimilar as it does an actual new biological drug. Wow. So in terms of the pricing, how much how much can we actually lower costs by going overseas or how much are we lowering the costs by manufacturing overseas? Significantly. And yeah. I know this from my own personal experience in um, both in Roshan Pharma and in my previous company, Cydos, where I would pay a third of a fill finish program overseas mm -hmm. that I would in the United States. That said, I have to talk about quality here because mm -hmm. the level of quality from skill of the team to air filtration and air quality, water quality, and um, cleaning protocols, and level of QA, quality assurance, um, rigor, is much higher in the United States and in Europe than it is overseas. And that is something we work really hard when we do manufacture in India to work with a handful of facilities that are operating at the same quality as U.S. facilities are. But then what would have been a third kind of goes to half or almost as much as manufacturing in the United States is. Mm. And I wish we talked a little bit more about this quality aspect, because what is manufactured, you know, at, for instance, in the case of the vaccine, what is happening at Pfizer's Kalamazoo um, manufacturing facility, which is running around the clock, is not the same as uh, even a top tier Indian manufacturing facility producing the, a COVID vaccine in India for rest of world. And that's a shame, but that speaks to a larger issue of at what point does quality trump price and how can we find mm. a way that enables both and where we don't have to pick one over the other? 
Okay. So let's, let's peel back a little bit. Does the FDA have different standards or are they doing fewer visits for manufacturers overseas? Like how could they possibly get away with having cutting corners at any manufacturing plant? The FDA is woefully understaffed when it comes to inspectors. Mm. So what U.S. facilities, because it's right in their own backyard, are visited once to twice a year with regards to overseas manufacturers. One, certain countries require that the FDA has to provide notice that they cannot simply surprise an inspection. And then two, you know, in the book, uh, Bottle of Lies by Catherine Egan, it does detail the levels some companies, some manufacturers will go to give the appearance of everything being done in strict GMP certified good manufacturing process controls. And it's a lot of window dressing and it's not actually, the plant is not really run at that standard around the clock, which is incredibly unfortunate, but sadly the reality. Yeah. So probably the most high profile case of this was the story about Ranbaxy. Am I pronouncing that right? Yes, you are. Give us the TLDR on that story. So Rambaxi, it was one of the largest generics manufacturers in the world and was supplying an insane number of um, drugs to the United States market for some of the most commonly treated disease and the commonly used drugs. And what was discovered through whistleblowers as well as um, deep investigations by FDA and our justice system is that Rambaxi engaged in widespread fraud from global regulators, so European regulators as well as um, the U.S. FDA, to make it seem that their products were produced at a quality that it wasn't. They falsified data. They um, hid records. They destroyed some records. Records were falsified and a batch was being manufactured. The data being logged wasn't actually what was happening and it was just sort of added in later to make it appear that it was accurate. And it was rightfully a huge scandal. And, you know, I will say I've seen the FDA be a lot more strict and proactive in the evaluation of Indian facilities, not just for manufacturing, but also clinical research organizations, non-clinical organizations, kind of the contract facilities that touch um, different parts of the drug development um, cycle. But I think we're also playing catch up in that there will always be companies that are not going to do things appropriately in an in an effort to make money. And the margins are low. I mean, I w- I'm thinking mm-hmm. about in our previous company, you know, we had plans to produce high quality generic oncology drugs in India at the quality that a US product would be manufactured at. And we lost a lot of money in it. We couldn't compete on price, even mm-hmm. though our quality was significantly better. Because how would consumers know, right? How, like exactly. who's responsible for actually doing those quality checks? If, if it's getting through the FDA, as we've seen with the Rambaxi case, how many millions of pills were taken that didn't exactly. meet the standards? How does this ever get exposed other than way after the fact? Don't we tell have... me it doesn't. That's no, really... no, 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 no. I, I, yeah. I, I, I believe we really need to. And I think this is a conversation that with 
COVID has kind of exposed is the need to staff up the FDA and also the CDC for that matter in a manner to be proactive about this. I think it is entirely possible. I do think, though, we need to find in the government the budget to do so. And, you know, I do think that this is a national security issue because this is the health of our citizens. This is the health of global citizens. If people aren't getting the medicine they're supposed to be getting, if it's degraded active pharmaceutical ingredient mm. or contamination somehow in the compounding cycle or the pressing of the tablet cycle, that is a significant national yeah. security issue. And, yeah. you know, I would like to see, you know, as a result of that, some defense spending be um, diverted to our scientific regulatory agencies to help beef up because this could very well, you know, I don't want to sound all doom and gloom, but this could be a path to a bioterrorist attack without us even ever knowing. Wow. I, I think that's a really good point. What percent of drugs are actually manufactured in the U.S. today? And what percent would make you happy and feel like it's no longer a national security threat? Well, and I want to say this, there are great manufacturers overseas. There are also some terrible manufacturers overseas. So what I would like to see are those great manufacturers to earn more business and we figure out economic incentives to keep them in business, to keep them manufacturing these products at a high quality. As far as how much is manufactured in the United States versus overseas, I think the vaccine has probably shifted that a little bit because both Pfizer and Moderna and J&J are manufacturing domestically. On average, it's probably 10 to 15%. When I think of volume of drugs um, administered or taken in the United States, because again, most of them are generic, and thus most of them are manufactured in India and China. Um, as far as novel drugs like newer biologics or the COVID vaccine, for example, that's most certainly been almost entirely domestically produced, at least for the United States market. But we need lower prices, right? Like we yeah. already, Americans pay significantly higher prices for prescription drugs today, which I yeah. want to talk about next. But how do we both maintain uh, or hopefully reduce costs? We cannot afford to have costs continue to rise. So I'd like to either maintain or lower the cost yeah. of prescriptions while ensuring better quality. How can we have both? The way to go forward with this is taking the best of what both parties propose. And I think having a public-private partnership between the drug, the drug industry, pharmaceutical industry, and the private public sector to, one, create an essential drug registry where they jointly come together and together agree on an accessible price and the government places large purchase orders like we did with the COVID vaccines to guarantee said price for their citizens. What we did with COVID, with the COVID vaccines, we should be able to do with insulin. We should be able to do with a lot of cholesterol um, control drugs. We should be able to do with hypertension drugs. We should be able mm -hmm. to do with some cardiovascular drugs. I see no reason why we can't take this approach that has been incredibly effective for the COVID vaccine to do so with these drugs. And with that comes a scrutiny to make sure that these drugs are 
what they claim to be. And whether those Mm -hmm. are some tax credits to those companies to produce them at a high quality to also offset more frequent inspectors, inspections from FDA, that's an option there. But I think that is one way when we tackle this from where are we spending the most money where we don't need to be, where the margins, I think, don't reflect. It's one thing for the margins to be great for the market, but if people are dying or people's access to these drugs is impacted as a result of that, we have a problem. So I want to look for that kind of Venn diagram and find those drugs and put in a public-private partnership that can, I think, effectively do so. I also think, you know, there's a lot of talk from you know, the Democrat side, that Medicare should be able to negotiate drug prices and that some of those prices should then be flow into the private market. What I'd actually counter with is that there was a a study that was reported recently that said Costco's pharmacy was more effective at negotiating better prices than... (laughs) Than, the, than Medicare was. And with that, wow. I say we have opportunities here with the, what doing best in class work for the private sector and best in class work for the public sector to come together on this issue and find some consensus and common ground. And if it's product where it's for the common good, I think just like you did, I think the vaccine provides a nice precedent to lead in this direction. Obviously, I think it will depend on who the new FDA commissioner is. And mm. who underneath the HHS secretary, Bakaria, is from industry that can help coordinate something like this. But mm-hmm. it has to be shepherded in the right way. Sure. Okay, so going back to that, that embedded question I had, which is, why <laughs> are Americans paying significantly higher prices for drugs, many of them discovered and developed here in the U.S., than our our friends overseas, and then like, why can't we buy medications overseas? Like, if the same medication is cheaper in Europe, why can't I buy it in Europe and have it shipped here? Well, here's what's really going to bust your chops: it is the same <laughs> medication. It is being manufactured at the same facility. It's just being shipped to the United States versus in Europe. I don't yeah. think source like so. We're already sourcing from the same place, but consider our um, supply chain in the United States. The drug goes from the manufacturer to one of the three big distributors. From there, it flows through group purchasing organizations that buy products at bulk and then distributes them to hospitals or local pharmacies, and then it comes to the patient. We have a lot of middlemen in the way Europe does not, and that is reflected in our price because everybody needs their cut. So someone like McKesson is adding to the cost because that ultimately is a middleman that we're paying for mm-hmm. that doesn't exist in Europe? In Europe, the I believe it goes from distributor to pharmacy or distributor to hospital, or it may not even, it may just go, the government might have a central depository. It's different in each country. I think in the UK, mm-hmm. the government has a central basically distribution center. And in Germany, there are a couple private distributors, but then sell directly to the to the hospitals and pharmacies directly. Do they also have more policy around pricing that helps keep it low? Absolutely. The government decides the price, mm-hmm. not the manufacturer. Yeah. So uh, the one that irks me the most, though, are drugs that are discovered here at U.S. Mm-hmm. like academic medical centers that all of our taxpayers support for their NIH grants and whatnot. And then 
somehow we are still paying more than someone in Europe with that same drug. It just uh, it doesn't seem fair. It's not fair. I will also say, and this isn't to you know side with my industry, but when a product, when a when a molecule goes from research from NIH or government funded research into um, into a pharma company to scale and further development in, it goes from maybe five hundred thousand to a million dollars of investment to having to put in tens, sometimes hundreds of million dollars of investment, and then on top of it you know, the rate of success for drug development programs is extremely low. So Mm -hmm. a lot of these companies are bleeding money because most products don't make it across the finish line, which is a sad truth, but it's also why in our role, um, both at Roshan, at Pharma, as well as Cytos, our approach has always been life cycle management for industry because it didn't really exist before. And pharma doesn't care about life cycle management the way tech does or other industries mm-hmm. do, which I think is deeply unfortunate because there are so many ways you can improve upon what we already have, which can either expand access to the drug because it's improvements in manufacturing and thus a more scalable um, product. So you could supply more of it or if you're removing harmful excipients, like especially in cancer drugs that are typically formulated with large levels of Crema4EL and polysorbate 80, which are detergents and requires steroid pre-medication for the patients to tolerate those excipients or those stabilizing and solubilizing molecules, formulating cancer drugs without them can offer us a way to make cancer drugs more tolerable for the patients, thus them more likely to finish a course of chemo and hopefully recover. And then also in the cancer space, taking you know cytotoxic products typically required the pharmacist to fully gown up, go under a hood, reconstitute the drug, and then dilute it in the IV bag. If we have ready-to-administer and ready-to-dilute cancer drugs, It reduces the time of gowning up and preparation that the pharmacist takes, meaning the pharmacist can prepare more drugs in less time, and there's a cost savings there. So we're interested in looking for opportunities that add value to not just the patient, but also to the different providers that touch this drug to make things more efficient without increasing cost. We'll be right back after the break. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. 
I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Well, this would be a good time to tell us about your background and kind of what <laughs> led you to the work and starting your company, um, Restaurant Pharmaceuticals. Well, my father was a pioneer in this space. Um, back when he left the last company where he worked for somebody um, in 2004, he started a very small lab. It was a two-bedroom apartment over a barn in Hyderabad in India, brought on a few t- team people who he had been connected with, bought a couple pieces of equipment, and started projects on reformulating products that he knew because he had been at some of these major companies were formulated poorly to begin with. So that first product he did was epoprostenol. Epoprostenol is a six-week continuous infusion drug to treat pulmonary arterial hypertension. It is, um, the innovator drug was so unstable that the cartridge in the infusion pump had to be replaced every six hours and a cold pack placed over the um, infusion pump. So really inconvenient for the patient. And the product had only been launched in the United States because it didn't meet the um, type of scale and the manufacturing capacity required to be able to supply it to Europe and Japan. So GSK never even filed it in those territories. My father developed a room temperature stable cartridge of epoprostenol where the cartridge could be replaced once every 24 hours, thus reducing the risk of infection because changing the cartridge does um, lead to that risk and no cold pack required. At the time, he then joined forces with um, someone he had met when he was you know, in the consulting world at a company called Nectar named Joe Bohan. Joe brought a lot of business development and business experience to the table, and they formed Cydos. And so Cydos used my father's lab in India to do exclusive research. And from that space, that epoprostenol product was at, licensed by a company called Generamedics, and then was acquired by Actilion and launched as Valetri. Actilion was acquired by J&J. And the product is doing incredibly well under the J&J portfolio. And it was the first epoprostenol to be launched in Europe as well as Japan. And it's a great product. And similarly, they brought the same approach to a number of injectable drugs. The reason they focused on injectable is that there is sort of a hybrid pathway approach that's not quite a generic, which is called ANDA or abbreviated new drug application or an NDA, which is a brand new drug called a new drug application. This pathway was called the 505B2, and it offered an opportunity that if a company made some kind of material enhancement to the formulation of an existing product, they got an abbreviated review time, so 10 to 12 months versus 24 to 36 with ANDAs. And if they were an injectable drug and met certain requirements, they would qualify for a bio waiver where a clinical study would not be required, which usually is the largest cost related to any kind of um, drug development program. ANDA, 
new drug development, or even in the 505B2 space. So they went all in. And back in 2008-9, that 505B2 market was very hot. And so we partnered with Eagle Pharmaceuticals to develop a number of products with them. Our Gotraban, a ready-to-administer solution, was one of them. And Bendeca, which is a reformulation of a cancer drug called Bendamustine, which is used to treat blood cancers, was another one of our very successful programs. Our formulation took what was a two-vial system of Bendeca that required reconstitution and that full gowning procedure into a ready-to-administer mini bag. And what's fascinating about this is we confirmed with a clinical study that infusing our version of the product was bioequivalent in a 15 to 30 minutes was equivalent to Teva's bendamustine being infused for the typical 60 to 90 minutes. So patients would be in a chair for a much shorter period of time compared to the original um, bendamustine. And that product is doing extremely well. And we have a few more that are going to be launched in the next year from that partnership that we're very proud of. But it's a way to add value to the healthcare system, both from patients as well as providers, without increasing costs in any marginal way, which is what you see with newer cancer drugs and newer cancer therapeutics, that they are extremely expensive because they cost so much money to develop. And if they are launched in Europe, because remember, because of price controls in Europe, they don't also have access to the same drugs we have in this country. So I don't know what the solution is of why does Europe pay so much less It is government regulation on their part, but then Mm -hmm. government regulation prevents them to have access from some of the latest and greatest, including outright cures of some diseases. And, you know, we're kind of footing the bill both as taxpayers and funding some of this early initial research, but also down the line as um, drugs become unaffordable and patients go into bankruptcy and all of that. So it is for as incredible and life-saving this industry is, I do believe the economics of life sciences is is broken and we need to we need to find a new path because we're acting as if it's the 90s, companies are coming out with blockbuster drugs where they have huge margins on them every single year. That's not the case anymore. So what's the solution? Oh, well, I do think if you, could, my... if you could wave a magic <laughs> wand and 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 completely remake the system. What would you? Yeah, what would it look like? I would like to see more public investment in our healthcare system, simply because I uh, how we're working is not working which is how I feel about many things right now. I think COVID did not fundamentally change anything. I think it exposed the weaknesses in our economy and in our workforce. So I would do a couple of things um, as it pertains to healthcare. The first is an essential drugs registry as a public-private partnership. So I mentioned it earlier, but having industry and the government come together to look at the most commonly used drugs in the United States and jointly agree on a price that works for them and works for the government, where the government is also placing large orders. This is where I think the private sector has an opportunity to work in concert with government. Amazon is a company that is best suited to basically build the entire supply chain infrastructure on their own. 
in a way and bypass a lot of um, the middleman here. So I would be act, and I think Amazon is this is probably if I read their tea leaves, they're planning to do with the acquisition of PillPack mm. and mm-hmm. the distribution scale that they have in terms of getting things to patients and the cash they have to be able to effectively become a distributor of their own group purchasing organization and the pharmacy. So flattening mm-hmm. the supply chain, it'll be an interesting experiment. But I do think if they don't want to pay their taxes, they should be doing this like for free <laughs> or at very little cost to the U.S. government to, point. to pilot this. Like again, Amazon, if you're not going to pay your taxes, maybe provide some public services here <laughs> to do that. And they would also be in a position to purchase to be able to procure large amounts of drugs at a specific price to make that volume and margin, the volume work for a smaller margin. So I think there are opportunities for government to partner with big big companies that have scale to do this rather than government trying to do it themselves. I think government should Mm -hmm. provide guardrails and enable things, but, and offer incentives for people, for companies to do the right things um, and let, you know, the private sector do it in a way. So there's one thing. The second thing is, is that our emergency department is basically the healthcare safety net in the United States is, is really messed up. And I do think we need to figure out how to make primary care more accessible. And so what I would like to see is we do have, you know, a fledgling medical core program in the United States that will pay off. And states also do this where, Medical school tuition is either fully um, paid off or given at a very reduced tuition rate if you're going to stay in a particular region and provide medical like work as a physician in you know places that are kind of healthcare deserts. So I think that's another thing we yep. could do is we need to expand access to primary care and get primary care where it needs to be. So partnering yeah. again with companies to do mobile medical clinics to go into communities and work with local community organizations like places of worship, community centers to get people in to deliver primary care for healthcare, dental, vision, hearing. Mm. And when you're ongoing monitoring someone's data and you have that record, you're able to catch potential disease much earlier on. And then let's get to the crux of it. I think the FDA has to regulate food at the same level that they regulate drugs. That most, of, mm. that most of our food is formulated with so much salt, sugar, fat to be so addictive that it then causes so many of these preventable diseases that Americans overwhelmingly have. Like, let's it's called the Food and Drug Administration Agency. Let's start regulating food. <laughs> A little bit more, as well as what can we do with, um, you know, private sector companies that are making access to healthy food more accessible and healthy meals more accessible? How do we partner with them to get their food into the communities that need them the most, where there is no grocery store within walking distance? And all they have available are sodas and chips and snacks and, you know, preserved foods. So I have a lot of ideas. Yeah. (laughs) So in terms of the the drug industry and what you would change, yeah. Americans filled 5.8 billion prescriptions in 2018, which is 17.6 prescriptions per person. Um, does that need to change? Well, I will say this. Yes, and 
that we fill our prescriptions, but we are also terrible at taking our medicines on a timely manner, mm. which is required to for the, the drug to work. It does you no good if it stays hidden in your medicine cabinet. And if you're not taking your statin every day or your hypertension drug every day. So we need to figure out the um the actual rate of people taking their drugs and get them to take their whole drugs on um, their full course of medication. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why expanding and access to primary care and getting those people to take advantage of that access is such a big issue because if we're able to keep people healthy or get them health, get them healthy and keep them healthy, listen, Yes, it will mean less profits for the drug industry with regards to, you know, the co most commonly used drugs. But to our point, they're not making that much money on those drugs anyway, or if they are, it feels predatory in the way insulin pricing and EpiPens are and almost unethical. So yeah, I do think we are having a reckoning. I think the COVID vaccine showed the best of how the government and the pharma industry can work together to get important medications scaled and delivered as quickly as possible, forgetting the misinformation and that whole side of it, but from a pure development scale and supply and distribution that is um, very much there. Yeah. I do think that we also have to figure out how we basically remake our healthcare system because right now it's a disease management system. It's not really de yeah. delivering health in terms of preserving yeah. it, getting people healthy and preserving their health because where's the market in that? And the COVID vaccine is the only vaccine that I know of that's free. The others I've all had to pay for. Correct. My So my four-year-old went for his three-year-old checkup a little bit late because of COVID. And I didn't yeah. want to, I wasn't comfortable. So we went like four months late. And then I went to schedule his four year, which as you know, has a ton of vaccines included mm -hmm. in the four year visit. And I went to schedule it and, and the insurance said, you've already had a visit this year. So we will not pay for the vaccines because you've already had a, a general visit this year. And out of pocket, it's like hundreds of dollars. Um, so anyhow, I feel like that's a, a whole other, a whole other conversation that we can have, but thinking about yeah. the way you've said it a few times, like there are lessons that we can learn from COVID and why haven't we been doing things this way all along, including yeah. making vaccines super accessible and free for everyone. That, and the government is in a position to purchase vaccines at scale. Mm -hmm. So every American should be able to get their flu shot for free. Every person who lives in this country should be able to get their flu shot for free. Every yeah. child who lives in this country should be able to get all of their immunizations for free. So that's the cost part of it. And then we need to figure out how we actually get shots in arms, which is where I think mobile medical clinics in underserved communities that don't have access to many, to many physicians and primary care providers is a way to deliver healthcare to the communities that need them the most. I love it. Hitha for FDA commissioner. <laughs> <laughs> one day, maybe one day. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for sharing your experiences and wisdom with us today. This was a really interesting conversation. Um, what is the best way for people to follow you? I am most active on Instagram and Twitter. Um, my handle is my name, at Hitha Palapu. 
And you will see a whole other side of Hitha. She has so many interests and areas of expertise. Um, So definitely go follow her and subscribe to the Heart of Healthcare podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Heart of Healthcare. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. The Heart of Healthcare is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producer is Brianna Seely. Our intern is Antonella Sterniolo. Our host is Hallie Tecco. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Brianna Seely. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscriptnot.com. That's media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com.